Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, this past summer has brought greater attention to questions of racial and social justice resulting from the George Floyd murder trial, as well as other stories that are depicting events that bring us back to an earlier time in American history. Now, while this renewed focus is welcome to address issues that still need addressing, the topics of diversity and equity, inclusion and justice are by no means new. Now, as anthropologists and sociologists like Gary and myself, we are well acquainted with these issues through the work in our disciplines, as well as, to be honest, some of the acts that were committed by earlier practitioners in our disciplines. So while there's not new topics, we are living in a new era. So the question can be asked, in what way can we engage younger generations around these topics of diversity, of equity, of inclusion, of building new kinds of societies to leverage their experiences and insights to move our work forward for a more just and inclusive society? And so to help us in this conversation, today we welcome to the Experience by Design Studios, Dan Egal and Desi Carson of the Inclusion Next work. The Inclusion Next work is a global network of emerging leaders who are very passionate about innovating how organizations as well as communities and just in general society approaches diversity, equity, inclusion, justice, and belonging. Rooted in their previous work in the field of DEI, J and B, Dan and Desi take us through what an inclusive community looks like using their ideas framework. They have a lot of different activities through their organization from roundtables on a lot of different inclusive topics, touching on a range of communities to skills and leadership development. They talk about how to create new approaches to our longstanding issues. They focus on empowering millennial and Gen Z talent who represent a growing majority of the workforce and community leadership. The key lies in co-creating a more just and equitable society across community building, resource strategy, and opportunity finding. It's a really important conversation. We were really glad to have them and hope you enjoy it. Are you on a lot? I mean, are you on a lot of podcasts? Do you get a lot of requests to show, go on shows and to talk about the work you're doing and the and the general topic of, I guess we can say DEI, JB, or ideas. Is there a big call for this? Do you find? Yeah, I know that. Oh, I don't mind starting. I know that Dan and I have each individually been asked to then on a few. This is our first one we're doing together, which is super exciting. The OG full-time staff so that's pretty beautiful but um we have individually been pulled I think with different specific topics leaning into it I've I've touched more a bit on the mental health psychology side as well in addition right. to ideas talk but um we we've each collectively gotten our voice on podcasts radio shows articles all those good things well since this is the first time for both of you I, I will try not to be responsible for any any acrimony that might happen <laughs> if there's any, you know, it's, you know, it's a lot of pressure here now because you have such a great organization. I don't want to be to blame. Usually I'm the one to blame. So I'm used to that at this point. It's all good. I think it's a good strategy we can go with. I'm always happy to place the blame somewhere else. And, and, you know, in terms of the organization, like who has the, uh, the, the older higher date? I mean, how did y'all, you know, when did y'all come in? Did you come in at the same time or was it different times? So I'm one of the co-founders, so I came in from the very beginning, but Desi was not far behind. Uh, we had a two layers removed connection. One of my former co-workers was Desi's co-worker's sibling. So we were each working with a pair of a sibling okay. and immediately connected us. And uh, Desi, I don't know if you want to show a little bit more about the origin story, but uh, Desi was like a whirlwind in the best possible way into my world. And I am so grateful that she found me. 
Yeah, what is the origin the story, Desi? Like how, like, how did you end up in the, I mean, I want to hear, I want to hear Dan's as well, but like, how did you end up in this, in this mix of, of the inclusion next work and, and, and doing all the work that y'all are doing right now? Yeah, absolutely. I love this story because the, the short answer is bull in a china shop sort of vibe. That's exactly what happened, uh, especially with the subject of what we do always been something I've been really passionate about, but I've never had a formal role in it. And I pushed really hard to look for opportunities for that. And the person that Dan had worked with, I met her and she referred me to connect with him. And I basically was like, Dan, all right, what's up? What can I do? Is there anything that you have going on I can help with? Again, volunteering, just volunteering my time. I just want to get in your world. And Dan was like, cool, here's this proposal we can work on and we do this thing together then end up being a, a part-time and then a full-time position again just super grateful for the opportunity and talk about accessibility you know any other situation I might not have even had a foot in the door and so I'm super grateful for that and the work that we're now doing because of that I, I kind of I'm kind of curious you know I want to sidetrack there for a second you know the idea of a bull in a Chinese shop I think it's such an interesting thing to talk about in relation to this work because I was thinking about this earlier today you know, with, with the work that we do at my school and just in my own work, balancing, trying to be gentle and gradual to a, fit with people's ability to take in these kinds of topics versus saying, you know what, uh, I don't got time to worry about your feelings and how much you can take in right now with this change. We got to push forward because these are larger things at stake, you know, rather than, you know, considering whether people's appetite is enough to handle the amount of change that we're talking about. So how do you like manage that kind of, that kind of thing of pushing forward hard at the same time, trying to not seem too pushy or is there no such thing as being too pushy in this kind of work? Yeah, that's a really great question, Gary. I think for us, this sort of our approach to the work around inclusion, diversity, equity, access, and social justice, or ideas as we call it, is actually embodied by our different approaches to the work. And that's all really important that we need all of these different voices and disciplines and perspectives finding their, their place in the, in the conversation. Part of our work is finding ways to speak into people's listening so that we're not putting them on their heels and turning them off to the conversation because one of, I think, the faults of the field that we've been in is that people have felt like it's not their place and that they've been, you know, depending on the identity markers that they bring or the positions they hold in organizations have said, you know what, this is for the folks over there to figure out. And as long as particularly people who hold power in communities and organizations feel that way and those spaces that we are in reinforce that they are not welcome, no change is sustainable. So for us, I think it's really important to have folks like Desi who really can be passionate advocates for a new paradigm of how we relate and connect with one another and folks probably a little bit more like myself who may be a little bit more measured or or diplomatic in certain (laughs) contexts to sort of find a balance so that we are providing spaces and multiple entry points for people regardless of their starting point. Desi, you're nodding vociferously. Can you nod vociferously or or enthusiastically? You're nodding enthusiastically. Both, all the above. Don't okay. don't box me in, Gary. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, and just very much seconding what Dan is saying. What he highlighted in that last point is that we 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 provide such a wide berth of who do you relate to? In this right. And we find that when when you're looking at organizations, going to be people on all different points of the spectrum. And a big thing we like to highlight, Dan talked about talking to someone's listening. The only way that we identify what their listening is, is by learning them and getting to know them and us actively listening um, and and starting with these psychological, emotionally mature lenses that let us see how we can reach you best as a person by disarming you from the very jump and playing off of each other's strengths and recognizing, hey, Dan, maybe you should have this one-on-one conversation with this person because they'll hear a lot better coming from you while I might take another conversation because our, we recognize those perceptions and though we want to work to dismantle them, we have to work within the flow of where we are at that given time and move them forward from where they're at. I think, Dan, I want to speak for you, but like, what the, was that part of what drove the creation of this organization was seeing, remembering back to earlier conversations we had, seeing that there was something lacking or, or at least a vision you had, which was different than the vision you were seeing and the work you were already doing. 
Absolutely. And I would say it wasn't solely my vision. And I think lots of folks in my peer group as millennials and in particular Gen Zers are feeling a way about the worry. They're feeling a certain way about how DEI or ideas work has been implemented and thought about in organizations. And it's not to say that we don't want to respect and honor and learn from those who've come before us because we wouldn't be here without those folks who have blazed a trail for us. And part of our work needs to be, how do we reimagine what needs to be done differently so we can actually achieve different outcomes? And so part of us, part of it is the balance between, even within our own field, finding the value and the importance of honoring what's come before us and willingness to push into something new. It's, it's, you know, we're talking about the generation piece. I was just having a couple of conversations recently. You know, I, I am the forgotten Gen X generation, you know, like literally there'll be news stories talking about boomers and then millennials and Gen Z. And we're like, Hey, how you doing? But I was talking with someone who was outside of my demographic, you know, more of a baby boomers. And it was interesting to hear, um, the seeming inability to incorporate the breadth of inclusion that is being asked of them um, and their struggle with this. And so, you know, as we talk about this inclusive diversity and inclusion, or as you guys have the ideas framework, I mean, what have you found in terms of trying to connect the message or speaking into the listening across these different generations, especially older folks who are like, you know, I just, you know, the pronoun thing, you know, it's like one guy said, there's, I was talking to, there's scientifically two genders. I was like, well, actually there's not, but continue, <laughs> you know, it's just like this block that people seem to have. Yeah. I, uh, I love this conversation a lot because it's very easy to lean into. This is what we've always known. Uh, especially when you're older, it's like, this is how I grew up. This is what I know. You're trying to change everything that I know. You're trying to tell me that the sky is purple as opposed to blue. And in fact, I found the most successful conversations come from finding a point of commonality that we can agree on and then adding the layers within their own timeline. And it's not going to all happen at once in ways that change the logic at which they're applying these decisions. And the only way to change logic is to introduce new facts. So I've had conversations with folks that resist the use of pronouns saying, why do I need to do that? Everyone knows my pronouns. I don't need to say that. Or if I know everyone in the room, they already know. And I, I went back to, to pushing to like, how would you feel if, if you had to hide a part of yourself in, in the larger group? Would, would that make you feel uncomfortable for a long time? It's like, well, yeah, that would. It's like, how would you feel if if you feel like if this part of you is out that your your coworkers will look at you differently or you might be hated or you might receive something hurtful, would you want that? And they would say no. And I'd say, well, what you're doing is opening up this opportunity to say it's okay for whatever pronoun that you're bringing that you have that you feel comfortable with. And I'm in solidarity with you by saying that. And it's much easier to say, hey, you're doing this to make something a better experience for someone else because you can sympathize and that you don't want to feel that negative feeling either. And that's right. something that everyone can agree on and, and avoiding those negative feelings. And that's what we try to lean into with bigger decisions as well. Right. It was, you know, one of the, when I was having this conversation with one individual, one of the points that he was trying to raise perhaps inartfully, it was, it was, you know, the, the, the perception of, fluidity beyond, you know, any particular moment. So, you know, it's this trope of, you know, well, if I think I'm a this, this day, then I'm going to require you to address me in those terms. And if you don't address me in those terms on that particular day, then you're doing something wrong. And tomorrow I might be a different thing. And the next day I might be a different thing. I mean, you know, there's this idea that um, people feel put upon by having to adjust their orientation to individuals based on what they perceive as, you know, spur of the moment, you know, identity inspirations. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, what I think you're pointing to Gary is one of the biggest tensions I think we see and experience with this work specifically, but also in the United States generally, which is the inability for people to hold multiple truths or perspectives or experiences right. as valid at the same time, yeah. even if they seem completely divergent. Right, right. And so our work is really about helping people to understand the why behind someone else's story, even if right. it doesn't match the why behind your story and the value and merits of both of them. And so for us, 
the, the conversation will always adapt and there's never going to be a fixed state where all of this is resolved per se. And I don't think that's what we're going for as an organization or as individuals that are in this space, but rather trying to create containers and spaces and relationships where that fluidity can be respected and navigated and leave both people whole regardless of their divergent needs. When you're, you know, it makes me think, and I struggle with this, you know, when I've talked to organizations and I talk to students working at business school, you know, on the one hand, I can, I can propose a moral, ethical, um, philosophical argument of why this matters, right? People's rights and justice and these larger kinds of very good reasons. And then I can go to the practical or the outcomes based. Well, if you do these companies that do these things perform better or are more profitable or generate more ideas and going back to your point, I don't think it needs to be either or, but I do wonder sometimes if I, you know, push the outcomes based, well, does that mean if the outcomes aren't there, then we shouldn't do it to begin with, <laughs> right? If it's outcomes dependent, then it, is it beholden to measurement that indicates it's beneficial? And if the measures aren't there, then we shouldn't do it anyway. I mean, should we be doing this stuff even if it's not more profitable or even if it's not more um, beneficial organizationally? And do we fall into a trap of creating this expectation of positive outcome as the ultimate goal and not as a out, you know, ancillary outcome that may be present? So my initial gut reaction is yes, absolutely. With a caveat. Okay. And my, the caveat is that yes, this work needs to happen regardless of the motivation driving it, because we live in a world where I don't think it's going to be possible for businesses or schools or any kind of organization to maintain relevance or be successful without engaging in these kinds of conversations. But I also, the caveat comes from how is it that we've created a society where it is the employer's responsibility to be the place where this all plays out? Sure. Where are these conversations in our schools, in our families, in our faith communities, in our civic institutions? Because as an employer now, I'm playing this dual role of doing the work that we care about and thinking about how do we then replicate and align those values internally and that alongside things like figuring out how to pay payroll and healthcare insurance and right. all these other things that are sort of raising the bar of what is expected of an employer. I think this meant for folks who are not, whose organizations and communities and businesses weren't built for this by design are now having to figure out how do I retrofit this into the ever increasing demands on what right. I meant to do. And it just is another area I could screw up. I think it's such a fascinating point because I, I was just on vacation last week. And as any good American, I worked on my vacation because this is what we do. Uh, I was, it wasn't all the time, but you know, you know, this idea, maybe my wife was saying, yeah, I got to get some work done. I'm like, well, you are on vacation. Yeah. But you know, this, this, this centrality, this kind of almost Protestantistic or Calvinistic centrality of work as center of everything, our healthcare, our ongoing education and life through professional development, our identity, and now our DEI train, I think it's such a fascinating point that, you know, why, why is it that we place everything in our adult lives around the workplace? It really does seem that way, doesn't it? I think a, a big point of that is, is purely just the amount of time that we spend, <laughs> we spend working, we spend during the day. If, if someone is going into the office, which is probably unlikely now, but commute time plus time there plus time back. And the amount of time that you have at home is minimal compared to the time, energy, emotional labor, labor that you put into that space. And as much as it's e an old, easy thought to think, don't bring your emotions into a workplace, don't bring your personal life into the workplace. We're humans, we're people, and we do bring that in and it does make up a big part of our life. And we think colloquially when someone asks you, hi, nice to meet you. How are you? What do you do for work? Like it is the top two questions that you get right. asked, then therefore it is expected of us that we have success within that realm as well. And it's, it's not comfortable to feel like you're not successful when it comes to work and therefore more energy needs to be put into it in order to have something good to talk about as a big marker of our identity next to like our name. <laughs> you know, on this point, why do you think you know, what is, what has been the reasons, what are the reasons why companies are increasingly going, you know, into this space? You know, we just created this major at Bentley and one of the reasons the DEI major, and one of the reasons we did it was because it matters, but also because there's, you know, it's a growth area for jobs. You know, why do you think companies are doing this more? Is it because it's 
they they recognize it justice is it a branding exercise is it because they see it as beneficial going back to your point dan all of the above some other reasons i didn't mention what's what's driving this uptick in organizations looking for people who can perform these roles internally i definitely think one aspect is a network effect that the more that this takes momentum and airtime of how organizations are thinking, whether it's because of news cycles or national events like the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the reckoning around race in our country that is certainly long overdue. There is a greater emphasis on needing to do this. And the more folks that do, then you become the, you know, there's a fear that I will be the last one or slow to market or slow to move on this. But I would say that the context that drives people to ultimately make a commitment to bring in an organization like ours or to just embark on this work, however it looks, is going to be super variable. But the one thing that I my hope is, and what we try to get really clear when we do have client partnerships, is to understand what their why is and what their expectations are. Because the field is still so amorphous, it becomes really difficult for organizations to, I think, absent having internal expertise around this, understand what kinds of levers, what kinds of programs, what kinds of strategy will actually make a difference. Because it's not a case of just translating what you see at your partner organization or the school down the street doing. Yeah, I love this idea of, you know, what the goals of the organization. I was just talking with a former student who's in a different consulting company. And, you know, we were talking, she was talking to me about change and transformation. And one of the things that I was saying to her was just because you have change doesn't mean you have transformation. And just because you say you want to get, you want to achieve transformation doesn't mean that you really just want some change. Right. And what does it mean to transform? You know, you can have change that we want to hire more people who are X group. That would be a change. Is the organization really transformed because of that? Are you allowing the organization to become transformed because of that inclusion? Is this something that you that you talk with organizations with a lot about a lot in terms of what are your goals and how can we set expectations of what we can achieve given what your goals, your honest goals are? Not only what are your goals, but how do you operate today? Because most organizations are saying, oh, this is going to be so expensive, but the resource that is actually in most limited supply is time. And so we want to get a sense for if folks are already maxed out in terms of their hours that they're working per day, and this is just going to be one more thing added to their plate, there's no way it's going to be structurally successful. It actually needs to be created time for intentionally. And so we really help organizations see if you have X going on now, what is your program and service cycle? What is your production cycle? What other big events or things are happening? Because we need to be really intentional about how and when we begin our partnerships. So do you find that, you know, coming in and speaking the language of business, not, and I, you know, not that you, I'm not that I'm sure you don't give a good sermon about this stuff, but you're also coming in and saying, here are the practical things we recognize and understand. I can speak to you in business terms like production cycles and staffing and resource allocation and, you know, quarterly expectations and whatever else I can speak that to get you to, you know, kind of lower your guard and know that I'm on your side and not just trying to give you a a new thing that now you have to manage on top of all the other things you have to manage. Absolutely. I'll just step in quickly here. And then Desi, I certainly want to hear your thoughts, but I'm, I'm as Desi knows, a recovering MBA. And so in the business world, I feel like I deeply understand some of the top considerations for leadership and management. But for us, we actually tend to uh, gravitate towards organizations that fall in the nonprofit and benefit corporation sectors Mm -hmm. because they are more able to articulate the why for themselves without needing us to and are able to understand some of our recommendations off the bat about how we structure our partnerships. Because most organizations, I think, see this as a a sort of one-off training initiative. If we just do some work around education and bias or uh, intercultural dynamics or subtle acts of exclusion, also known as microaggressions, like that's what we need. When in fact, a lot of the issues that they're experiencing around culture and equity and justice may actually have a different sort of structural solution that is not typically included in the DEI framework. Right. Yeah, 100% everything to what Dan said. And like he also mentioned earlier about having just as client projects, a pretty diverse team of who we bring on board. And it changes with every project to accommodate what they're doing. So if we're working with an environmental justice organization, we're going to bring in environmental people Mm. and therefore strengthen the voices that we have. And like Dan said, certain conversations it might be more appropriate to pull on that business lever and other times it would be this emotional lever and other right. times we would just toggle back and forth even even mid like in the middle of a training that we're doing and we see a conversation molding in a certain way 
we have the people available and the expertise available to be able to be ready for whatever lever we need to pull at that particular time. It's pretty rare when people in an organization say, oh, good, the consultants are here. Right now we can relax. Now help has arrived. It's usually, and I'm speaking as my own experience, right? You know, being in a school, then we've had consultants come by, love and mean it, not necessarily, but this idea of, oh, the consultants are here. They're going to help. They're going to tell us what to do. Right. And then you add on the DEI, J, B, ideas stuff, then it's like doubly, oh no, here they come. And so I think it's like really fascinating to use the folks that they recognize as one of them because they have that competency and expertise to be the bridge to come in and kind of almost like an anthropologist who is a native, right? Or that key informant who's a native who can kind of help prepare the way to come in to do the work. Absolutely. And this just goes back to the speaking into the listening of the people. We're right. Working. Right. I would add into that, that it's, it's usually not the singular perspective that we have going into organizations. Some people see us as like, oh, finally, help is here to amplify my voice and what I've been trying to say to the organization for so long, you know, and, and that is a really beautiful role to be in as well, to feel like we are advocates for every part and every person that has different levels of power within the organization. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's really important. I'm kind of curious if you can relate, like, without naming names, like a situation where someone who might, have, a group or an individual who might have been defensive initially, saw you as advocates for them as well. And then like, how does that work? What does it look like when that person sees you as an ally when before they saw you as an adversary because they don't think their group is part of or their identity is part of this conversation? One example that comes to mind is just the importance of acknowledgement because oftentimes as external parties to the organization, even if we say the exact same thing that has been advocated for by an internal member of the team, it will be listened to differently because we come in as, you know, rightly or wrongly with sort of the ex expert uh, label on us. And so when we think about folks who have been doing this work internally and trying to marshal resources and time, I think one of the quickest ways we can turn them from a skeptic into a real ally is to make sure that credit is given where credit is due and then to raise a conversation about, you know, Desi raised this to you guys six months ago. We're raising the same concern because we see it too. I'm curious about given the disparate response that was made to the same information, what does that tell us about your culture or where might there be room for us to have a different discussion? And that often is a way of helping people see that we're not here to uh, override efforts that have already taken place because oftentimes we are not stepping into a culture that hasn't had iterations or sparks of these conversations before, but to really acknowledge why have those prior efforts not materialized in the results people want to see. It, it makes me think, and I've, you know, thinking about things like intersectionality, right? And even though it comes from a legal context and it's actually, you know, critical race theory, this idea of, you know, when I've done, I've been teaching on race topics and ethnicity topics and culture topics for a long time. And you, you invariably get somebody who's like, you know, says, well, I'm a white guy and I grew up poor. I didn't have that. And it really is an intersectional argument, right? You know, I mean, it's, you know, they're saying they're talking about this intersectional identity saying, well, I grew up poor in a rural area. And so even though I'm this, I also have that. I mean, and I found that to be a beneficial concept to not just talk about the experience of African-American women in, in the legal system, but also for other people in an organizational system to, to, to feel like they're being represented as part of the conversation, that the dynamics of their own identities, while some of it might hold privilege, other parts of it might hold disadvantage. And then to kind of see that, to help them see how those things can come together to create a net outcome or a contextual based outcome where, yeah, in some situations you being poor from a rural area is going to hurt you, but in other situations you having these other things is going to be a benefit. Have you, have you found something similar in your own work and trying to help lower those, those defenses into having these conversations? Yeah, I think what you're referencing kind of alludes to what Dan mentioned earlier about holding multiple truths at the same time. Right. And with intersectional identities, we end up talking about this a lot and trying to avoid pain Olympics, oppression Olympics. This is not something that we want to do. And part of avoiding that is creating a space in which it is brave and safe and psychologically understanding for the people within that dialogue that is okay to express, hey, I have this identity that 
I feel this pain or oppression through and this other person can also hold that and we have different experiences and we can both be seen and both be understood and one of our initial exercises trainings that we do with organizations is purely relational it's purely looking at the different identity markers that make up who we are pairing people together and they talk to people they've never they usually don't spend all this time talking to they share personal things about their lives and what that does disarm them in these conversations and can make it easier for them to hear each other and have those positive positive outcome based like get good things out of the conversation as well I kind of wish there was a pain Olympics. I'd like that. I mean, the Olympics just started. And so I think I would do well in the pain Olympics. If there was like something like that, I think I would have a, have a, have a, have a leg up. And so I like that term pain Olympics. That's not a competition over who was harmed the most. <laughs> the question becomes, well, why are any of us having to undergo this kind of harm? And it also makes me think as a sociologist versus a psychological, the, the, the systemic, right. That, you know, Move and I, I've talked about this at my, at my workplace with folks. <clears throat> Moving from the individual attribution of blame, right? You are biased. You have this cognitive issue of um, of prejudice. To systemically, this is how we experience the world through these membership categories, and how that can really transform the nature of the of the of the conversation with folks. Yeah, it honestly provides a platform for collaboration that is much easier to step off of and lean into each other and make forward progress than anything. It's like, oh, you're going through that for your identity and I'm going through this because my identity because the system is working against us. Let's work together against that. Like, Like this makes sense, right? This whole common enemy sort of vibe is something that has been even historically, a very, very powerful gathering of folks with intersectional identities enacts huge monumental change throughout global societies. Right. It's always been the solution. Well, it goes back, you know, I'm old enough to remember um, the WTO protests in Seattle, right? And and it was an interesting moment in that it brought together and the whole thing was around bringing together all these different groups who previously weren't together. The environmentalists, the Teamsters or the union people, um, the people who were, you know, um, dealing with community work and poverty, right. And, and any other group, you know, we're coming together and also going back to the poor people's campaign of Martin Luther King, when he was transitioning into this poor people's campaign and the March on Washington really being about as much, you know, socioeconomic issues as it is around, you know, race issues as well. And the systemic or, you know, orientation of there's this larger thing at play here. And rather than blaming each other, we need to kind of reorient our focus to this larger issue that we're all having to deal with, albeit in different ways, but we're still having to deal with it. One of the things I think makes that complicated, but a really important part of this conversation, that's sort of a corollary to being able to hold multiple truths as possible, is that for some people, they've walked through the world or moved through the world rather as individuals, they've never had to think about affiliation or affinity or membership into a larger group. And for some folks, they haven't had the privilege of that where they've always had their group identity, whether it be their gender identity, their race, their ethnicity, whatever it might be seen first before the individual. And I think for folks, and this is a broad sweeping statement, so I don't mean it's true for everyone, but my personal experience has been, the more that you have memberships into groups that are seen before the individual, which we typically ascribe sort of a non-dominant trait or a marginalized trait, the easier it is for you to see systems because you're not in this world where you only exist as yourself. Right. And so the degree to which we can help folks who for whatever reason have only really thought of themselves as John Doe or whatever can now actually begin to understand how these systems operate because it, it sort of breaks down this wall of everyone is responsible solely for themselves. Individual agency is the only thing that leads to outcomes. And there's actually a lot more nuance to that conversation. And so how do you, you know, when, you, when you're talking with organizations and, you know, we're all here relatively on the same page, so we're able to speak the same language. We're speaking to our listening relatively easily. How, you know, is there... Two questions, I guess. Is there a hesitation among organizations to engage in this level of discourse around these topics? Because then they think, well, what am, I, well, what am I supposed to do? And so how do you transition from that into, well, here are some basic, simple things that you can do right now. Here are some long-term things you can think about 
But here are some things right now that are really easy, really simple that you can do at this moment to automatically, or I would say automatically, it'd be too easy, but to immediately help to address some of these issues. Well, the first thing is something that Desi alluded to earlier, which is really about creating this container and starting with relationships. Because to me, one of the biggest challenges of this work in organizational space is tying back to the fact that it is now the employer and your workplace where these things are happening, is that if you don't have a good relationship with your manager, if I can't ask Desi, my manager, to go on vacation, how on earth are we going to talk about systemic racism? And so as a former athlete, I always had to go to tryouts every year, had to go to practice before games. Otherwise, I wouldn't be allowed on the field. And so for us, our intention in a sort of parallel way is to create a space where people can build relationships and have practice at the skills and the awareness needed to engage in these kinds of conversations, assuming that no one knows anything about anything and we all have something to contribute. And that is a really important way to start because it doesn't assume anything but it gives people, regardless of their starting point, a really meaningful access point to begin these conversations in their workplaces. And so that starts with uh, thinking about how do we foster belonging and build relationships? And you'd be surprised, like just structuring a 30-minute conversation for two people to connect as people in a Mm -hmm. semi-structured way opens up amazing possibilities to then have conversations around how do we foster and repair trust when it's broken? How do we think about power dynamics? And how do we think about the things that are in the room regardless of what topic we're talking about. I really love that because one of the, one of my biggest criticisms of intercultural communication work and training is that it starts from the position of difference, right? We, you are different. Uh, this is the, why I tell my students, imagine when your parents went to another, you know, parent's house and the kids were brought together and, you know, to play, you don't know each other. What if the parents said, okay, now, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so, those kids, this is all they don't like. And this is how you're not like they are. And this is everything you don't have in common. Now go to play together and have fun, kids. We would never do that. But how much of intercultural training is here are the things, this is the ways that they're different. This is how you're not like them. Make sure you don't do these things. Now make sure to go work together. And then people feel petrified and we wonder why. I mean, it's kind of bizarre, isn't it? I mean, I, I used to watch intercultural trainings and go, that doesn't seem helpful. I understand appreciation of, and sensitivity, but at the same time, if you don't create a pathway or avenue to find commonality, you're kind of stuck in this realm of we can't, we can never be sit the same. We can never connect. Yeah. I think that highlighting the difference between, Hey, these are maybe negative connotative things and these are positively connotative things. It's a completely different playing field and examples like, Dana mentioned about this is just the place that I'm coming from. If I speak about where I'm coming from, I'm putting my my energy into this emotional bucket between us. I'm making myself vulnerable. And if you are doing the same towards me, then we know what the differences are at that point. We but we know more about where the similarities are. We know more what might be interesting and where we can build together by starting from that place of mutual vulnerability and self-care and like you said not highlighting the massive differences like oh they don't they don't do this or they don't like this so make sure not to say this to them that's already putting someone on guard it's more like no be you be human we want to encourage people to be their most full and authentic selves however they want to opt into that into the space because that immediately crosses that bridge that you mentioned yeah, for some reason, I just got in my head this idea, like the, the trope in, in Hollywood of the buddy comedy. It's like one of the most popular, you know, motifs there is, whether it's like Blazing Saddles or Trading Places or 48 Hours or, you know, going out on the list. It's like these, this, this mismatch that you have two people that are dissimilar and then they find a way through the film to come together and work together. I mean, we love that as a society. We love the buddy comedy. We love that motif. But then at the same time, it seems like in, in our everyday lives, people can be, you know, find that threatening. But going, and I think about that, Desi, that this relational thing, right? Is there a way of using the buddy comedy framework <laughs> to kind of show people that we're just trying to get you to realize the things that you like to see on the screen or like to see on television or you like to hear about of that, you know, the unlikely couple who don't seem anything alike coming together and achieving beyond what we thought was possible because of their working together. 
it's all about proximity. I think we live lives in the United States, generally speaking, that are just as segregated by race and class and other ways that we identify as we did 60 years ago. And just by having people connect to your point, Gary, as humans makes all the difference. Like one of the things that I think is the easiest low lifts that organizations surprisingly don't do and is totally free advice is start every meeting with a check-in question that has nothing to do with your work. Mm. We okay. talked today, ours was, you know, if you were going to be in the Olympics, given that it's starting on Friday, which event would you most want to compete in? And the over Olympics. time, the pain Olympics, the pain Olympics, exactly I want that one. <laughs> but you find over time that if we, if, you know, belonging, which so many people profess to be the outcome or desired goal of some of this work comes through relationships. It has right. come connection, but that doesn't come through talking about what's on a spreadsheet or the deliverable you have coming next to you next week. And so for us at INW, all of our meetings start with a completely what is seemingly irrelevant or random checking question, but that gives us space to be relational with one another and to build connection over time so that when there is a moment where Desi's like, hey, Dan, I really didn't like what you did there. And here, let me give you some feedback. We have the relational buffer to know that Desi has my best interest at heart. I've had so many conversations with her to cement how I feel about her that she can tell me anything and our relationship right. can withstand it. Most organizations don't do that. And it takes five minutes. Right. It reminds me, real quick story. I was doing some research on distributed software development teams. And we were talking with this one guy in, in India who's Indian. And he was saying that um, he had to go pick up an Irish software developer and from the airport. And so he, you know, they thought they had nothing in common. There were all, all these team issues, you know, from Ireland to India. And in the car was a tape or a song playing that was heavy metal music. And the Irish guy knew who the band was. It was some obscure band, knew the band, knew the tape, knew the song. And it turns out they both had the same interest in the same music. And going back to proximity, right? I mean, I, clearly one's in India, one's in Ireland, but how do we virtually, right? Get past this situation. You talked about the question, right? At the beginning of the meeting, how else might we, how might we, close proximity, make ourselves available when we're in increasingly virtual environments so that we can find these aspects of self out that break down these, you know, the appearance of difference. I really like that question because it, it relates to a common challenge we get asked all the time about virtual work. You're like, right. well, people are missing out on the couple minutes after a meeting where you kind of talk or their water cooler right. passing and everything like that. And I always respond with saying, why can't you just stay on mute for a couple or Zoom for a couple extra right. minutes? We, we do that all the time. <laughs> or we'll right. say, hey, do you have an extra minute? Or we'll just sit there and debrief or make jokes or anything like that. These, these spaces, once they're given permission to exist in the adaptation of virtual space, become just as valuable as they were in person and more curated. I mean, I have scheduled meetings with other team members about completely non-work things and they know it and we can schedule from our shared calendars and and that's okay and also for example if I have a, a non-work related meeting with one of our coworkers, I know Dan isn't going to look at my schedule and see that and be like yo oh wait what are you doing there because because we value that across the board we value and so that recognition and and not feeling like I have to be afraid to be too social or <laughs> afraid right. to have those times that I'm making or that we're both mutually releasing after a meeting and we stay on for a few minutes. That being okay, we all have permission, we all celebrate it with each other, makes it much easier in a virtual space. Like we're, I've never seen Dan in person and mm. I absolutely love him. So it, it makes all the difference. <laughs> You seem to be getting along pretty well. I mean, you, 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 I mean, it's, it's, I was, I was thinking about this as I was watching us, you know, do this, that you both are able to time out the pauses in terms, cause I've not once said, Dan, what do you think about this? Or Desi, what do you think about that? And you've both been able to turn take pretty effectively and relatively seamlessly, which is honestly no small trick. And I think it's a testament to exactly what Desi is talking about, <laughs> which is that because we've invested upfront but some people may say is too much time in our relationships. I would say that that pays so many dividends in terms of just how synced up we are right now. We didn't prepare for this conversation with talking points because no. we knew that we're on the same page in a way that allows us to be a really effective team. And so while certain organizations may have different kinds of limitations and constraints that they're operating within, for us, and as cheesy as this might sound, like to us, the fundamental unit of social change is the relationship. 
Because right. if I'm on my own trying to marshal change out in the world by myself, to me, that's anti-social change. It's not social change or social justice if I'm doing it on my own. And so I think we have, as a nation, sort of forgotten, if there's sort of one theme to take away from this conversation, the importance of investing time and energy and focus in relationships. And we're not saying that you have to love everyone you work with. It's not that you have to spend every waking moment with your coworkers. But the time that we spend being in very intentional relationship makes us a better team. It brings us a sense of connection and admiration that I think extends to, you know, beyond what we would consider a typical working relationship. It, it you know, one of the things and I want to get to all the activities you have going on, but, you know, I, I tell folks, if you call people managers, they will. If you call them facilitators, community organizers, right? How do we create workplace communities is a thing I've talked about, right? You know, creating workplace communities or creating virtual communities. Desi, you were just talking about, you can do this stuff online. I'm like, you know, there are virtual communities. They do exist. People do share stuff about themselves, very intimate and personal stuff that they might not even tell people in their, in their, you know, quote unquote, real, you know, physical life. And so building, you know, changing managers to organize community organizers as a different way of thinking about it so that it's not dictating behavior, but it's facilitating relationships. I, I love in general challenging the concept of management. <laughs> and I think that there, it seems ineffective to apply the same exact way of management to everyone or everything that you're managing. It's just, Right. unrealistic i am nothing like the other people that we or nothing like the other people that we have on our team so dan and i's relationship is going to be unique and different it's going to be managed in a different way and the only way that that's possible like you said building more community is if we are leaning into that listening and getting to know people and opening up questions that lead to better relationships with your quote-unquote manager dan and i've had conversations about how to have feedback what it's like for time off or, or certain needs, even week by week, that might right. change on re renegotiating deadlines. Um, I, I manage, I manage someone, but from the very jump, I've had communication with her, like, what do you want this to actually look like? Because you are an independent, autonomous, very brilliant person. And we worked pretty much side by side for a good amount of time before the develop before it changed but I didn't want that to change our relationship so right. we might not have a traditional management relationship but we are building something together with input on what she needs and what she wants and vice versa and we can do that on a larger scale someone can manage on a larger scale but it's really about do I know this person can I give them what they need can I hear them can I know them vice versa. And then community just sprouts out of that, like some beautiful flower. <laughs> and, well, the beautiful flower thing, we've had so much rain in the Northeast. I don't know that neither Dan nor I want to hear about anything sprouting uh, because it's like mold that's growing up the side of my house because we have so much rain, but I appreciate the metaphor. It's been rough, right, Dan? It's been a little difficult. Yeah. Even as I, we've been speaking, there's been two sort of quick spurts of torrential downpour in DC. So yes, very on brand for this time of year. And Desi's like, I don't want to hear it. We live in California. We haven't had rain since uh, four years ago. <laughs> Especially in San Diego. <laughs> the shade. Yeah, at least San Diego is a little bit less like um, hot than other places. <laughs> yeah, the people in the Northeast going, oh, we've had too much rain. And the people in California were like, you know, have you noticed we have no more water? It's like gone. <laughs> I know, crazy, but that just shows it's all about perspective and trying to understand each other's perspective, even when we live in very different worlds, one arid and one apparently tropical, <laughs> which the Northeast has become tropical. You know, we've been talking about stuff that you do with organizations. So I wanted us to kind of go through many of the things that you put on for anybody who would like to participate. So I know Desi, you had quite the list and we were talking before we started recording, um, you know, talking about, you know, the round table that's starting up on Monday. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So our round tables program runs twice a year. We have a spring and a fall semester and our fall semester is officially starting on Monday. It'll run until the end of the year. And it's a space to basically skill build and have leadership development and really educate folks on our ideas framework, its themes, its applications, and also the major trainings that we tend to do with clients so that they can learn about the content, why we do it, 
best ways to facilitate it and therefore continue on with the movement that we are trying to embody and have it spread into their own organizations. They also get benefits of networking in their private cohorts on Slack, on multiple channels. And it's really helpful for them to find their community, find their support, find their tribe, and be able to in, involve more change in whatever organization or community that they're in. So for this is the fall semester starting up very soon. And as a, as an academic, it's very triggering to have you say the fall semester is starting next week. Yeah. Very, yeah, all the homework and all the assignments. No, no. <laughs> it's very triggering. When's the next round going to happen as well? The next round will start in January 2022, I believe January, okay. February. And so applications will open up by the end of the year, okay. probably November, December. And it'll be it's open for absolutely anyone, practitioner or not, when it comes to DEI, because we have two levels available, those that are more kind of entry level, getting their feet wet, and those that have been in the field and want to get deeper into the space. Fantastic. And also about the disability justice talk. I know that's you that's that's coming up as well, hasn't started yet, still a question mark. Can you tell us a little bit about what that program is like and what you're trying to launch with that? Yeah, so our we want to have a, it's a forthcoming disability justice talk. We are also looking to bring in more speakers. So whether that comes from people who listen to this or from our own community, and we're looking to have it either in September or November, depending on timing that works for folks. And the main focus being how to create more accessible spaces by considering different needs of folks uh, within the community, and especially those that have disabilities, both visible and invisible. I really appreciate that because, well, I have a daughter who's developmentally disabled, but also the, the notion of neurological um, diversity or neurodiversity. And uh, there was just a story recently with Walmart. You know, it's like always Walmart. Um, I said that you did and it's okay. That there was a woman with, I think it was Down syndrome who worked for at a Walmart for 13 years. They were adjusting her schedule. Um, and the way they were adjusting her schedule was very disruptive for her because she was used to a regular schedule and which she always had, and they fired her because she couldn't adapt to that shift in schedule. And she actually was awarded, I think it was like a hundred and some million dollar award, which is gonna, I think, be reduced to like some 400,000. I'm making these numbers up, but I'm up in the ballpark. But it was just kind of interesting, right? That here have a person who's contributing in a way that's meaningful, not only to themselves, but to the organization and the customers. And what's gained by? you know, making a, a situation in which the person is not accommodated and what are the, what are the limits of accommodation or should there be any limits of accommodation when considering these range is this range of abledness or range of experience in more traditionally thought of, you know, diversity spaces. I would just add there too, that not only, do those considerations come to mind, but also what signal does that send to everyone else about who's welcome, about what the organization values right. and the willingness to create spaces where anyone can be successful. Right. And so if people want to get involved or be part of the disability justice talk uh, program, which is, you know, being developed, how would they go about doing that? Absolutely. So on our website, there is a page that lists all of our events, including that's considered one of our fireside chats along with the salary negotiation one in August and the peak inside INW in October. And on that page, we also list our weekly plenaries, which happen on Wednesdays and Thursdays, but alternate each week for folks to come and talk about ideas related issues. And then healing circles that occur every Wednesday for folks to come and unload, unpack, get support. We do grounding exercises, breathing exercises, joy producing exercises, and we talk about all range of topics, but all of that is on that page and on the website to register and it's all free. And, and we'll have all this information in our show notes for the inclusion next work and their, and their website. Um, and I, you know, for anybody who goes to their website, you know, you might see a lot of younger looking people, at least younger than me. <laughs> There's a lot of discussion of millennials and Gen Z's, but it doesn't mean that it's only for those folks. That's exactly right. I mean, while our initial intention was to help create a community for folks that are now rising into levels of leadership formally in organizations, we're really 
excited by anyone who's willing to take a next-gen perspective, who's willing to think about this work interdisciplinarily, intergenerationally, and is committed not to the status quo, but to thinking responsibly and in community about what we could create together in the future. I think that's really great for people who are, you know, looking at developing as leadership or in current leadership, right? And how those groups can come together. I think it's really so important because there's so few spaces today where generations come together. Right. Exactly. You talk about proximity, Dan, you know, we know, you know, people, you know, places are segregated based on social class, you know, you know, if you can't afford to buy a house, you can't live there. Number two, you know, we talk about racial segregation, but generational segregation is a really big thing as well. And that, you know, there are so few spaces for folks to come together across generations to connect and share and enrich. And that I think that group creating, going back to the point you made, Desi, about creating those spaces, creating a space for folks to talk about these things in a safe environment without judgment across generations to help further the conversation and understand where listening, where how to speak to different listenings, as, as you both so eloquently put it. Anything else we didn't talk about? You know, we talked about a lot. I don't know that we solved it all. Did we solve it all? Can we solve it? I mean, is it a space where it can be solved or is it a space where as we become more aware of diversity, inclusion, equity, justice, that the conversation continues to grow as society changes? Is this, are we thinking about it wrong? If we think, you know, we need to, we need, you know, at some point, should this work all be done? Or is that thinking about it wrong, that this is an evolving journey that will never be done. We just need to get better at it. So we, so we can make, progress more quickly. One norm that we try to instill in all of our work is the acceptance of non-closure. We live in a okay. society that really enjoys and appreciates certainty, and this is not a space where you'll often get that. Right. So if we can think about this work akin to living a healthy lifestyle, you don't just have a salad once and hope for the best. You have to think about your sleep hygiene, how you exercise regularly. If you are being negatively impacted by environmental factors that like pollution that could be harming your health, you act, you know, there's all these things that we do to live healthily. And in a similar vein, I think that's how we should be approaching this work, that there's always room for improvement. We have to be constantly monitoring how our progress is going and that there's never going to be a day where like, yep, I'm going to be healthy now forever because I ate that one thing I was supposed to and went for a run. I can't take it just like an ideas pill. You don't have that yet. Are you working on something like that? It could be in development, but that's a secret for That's a secret. Okay. We want to talk about it. We'll talk about it later. Go ahead, Desi. You're going to say something. (laughs) I mean, I was going to say, I, I feel that way when I have like a salad, I'm good for the That's year, it. right? I mean, do you um, need more than that? I don't know. That you've either. done your good deed. Right. I've done my good deed. Yeah. Well, as a vegetarian, I feel like I do plenty of good deeds so <laughs> I can have the pizza. Um, I, I was going to further what Dan was saying in, in relationship to that and being okay with uncertainty, but also being okay with the constant process of how can we do better without feeling a sort of self-deprecation or organizational self-deprecation, because it's uncomfortable to feel like you're not good enough. And we know that that is a a problem in both individual and organizational thought, but it doesn't have to be framed in that way. It could be, how can we grow? I'm excited to grow. I'm in a comfortable space to grow. Dan mentioned earlier about we have a good relationship so we can say a bunch of things to each other. If we didn't have that, I'd be like, this is nitpicky or you don't understand me or this and that, but that doesn't happen. And it continue. we're able to continue to grow in that way. And I think that it's important to be able to critically ask ourselves that all the time while caring for the part of ourselves that we can celebrate. Like these are our successes. We've been doing amazing at this. I love this. I'm so proud of everyone that was part of this. And, and then still grow from there and not feel done and be uncomfortable with that or be comfortable with that because asking questions isn't a bad thing. So it's, it's the journey, not the destination, right? In the most cliche way, yes. Was that cliche? <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was being eloquent. Someone said that before. I'm not the first one to say that. We might've heard it once or twice. Well, I'll try to be more original next time, but I want to thank you both very much. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's important work. It's, uh, you know, unique, I think in terms of the way you all are approaching it. I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of space to evolve how we've talked about these things, how we've approached these things, how we've treated these things and how we think about them and, and view them not as something to, that has to be done, but something that should be done because we all end up benefiting from it. Was that better than what I Was that better than the cliche that I do better there? It sure was. And thank you for the opportunity to connect on this, Gary. <laughs> we really appreciate it. 
We want to thank the team from Inclusion Nextwork for joining us today to talk about new strategies for building new and inclusive networks. Be sure to check out their site, services, and blog to learn more about their work. And we also love to know your thoughts on how could we design a better and more equitable and inclusive society? Do you use co-creation methods or work with multiple generations? And if so, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com and let's get in conversation. We also want to thank you for supporting the podcast. We really do appreciate your contributions and listening, your sharing of ideas, your financial support as well in making this podcast possible. You can always support our podcast through Buy Me A Coffee, which can be found on our website, experiencexdesign.com. And as always, you can also share feedback at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. If you have any ideas, have any potential guests, want to shoot a kind message or even some polite suggestion, we're always happy to hear it. Finally, if you want to subscribe and join the EXD community, head over to our website to subscribe and stay on top of all the EXD news and find us on LinkedIn to be part of that conversation as well. And as always, be safe, be well, be vaccinated, wear a mask, and we'll see you next time on Experience by Design.